0: Welcome to Rising. It's a big morning for us. Obviously, it's debate reaction morning. Uh, Brianna, I know you were up (laughs) way too late because I saw you
1: posting in the Slack at 2.40 a.m. Nobody can accuse me of not working hard for the money. (laughs) I not only live tweeted the debate, I hopped on a rowing machine and watched the Donald Trump interview in full on the Tucker Carlson show, and then I had to scan the internet for everybody else's take. So I'm fully prepared to get into the details with you this morning.
0: Well, let's get right into it. We're going to talk, obviously, about the Republican debate in a little bit, but we're going to start with what Donald Trump was up to as this was going on. Take mm, it away.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Robbie, as many of you are aware, Donald Trump is back with a new Tucker Carlson interview. Uh, and of course, he held no punches back when hitting out against Fox News in their choice to have a primary bait with his fellow candidates and without him. More interestingly, Carlson pressed Trump on whether he thinks he'll be epstein
2: do you think it's possible that Epstein was killed?
3: Oh sure, his- it's possible. I, I mean, I don't really believe, it. I think he probably uh, committed suicide. He had a life with you know beautiful homes and beautiful everything and he uh, all of a sudden he's incarcerated and not doing very well. I would say that he did, but there are those people, there are many people, I think you're one of them, right? But a lot of people think that he, uh, he was killed. He knew a lot on a lot of people. He was
2: killed. I think. Think so? I think the more the closer you look, I'm not a conspiracy person at all. I believe everything I hear, uh, but yeah, the the closer you look into it, I mean, the Attorney General of the United States, your Attorney General, yeah. clearly lied about the Epstein death. Yeah, and he was. Why
3: he was uh, certainly it wasn't well done. They had no cameras. They had no anything. Everybody was sleeping, and you know there the case could be made. Look, I'm not going to get involved in it, but I can tell you a case could be made either way, but. Uh, it certainly wasn't the most well-run place. So,
2: so the reason I'm asking you is, I'm looking at the trajectory since 2015 when you got into politics, yeah. you know, for real, and then won. Uh, it started with protests against you, massive protests, right. organized protests by the left, and then it moved to impeachment twice, right? and now indictment. I mean, the next stage is is violence. Is, are you worried that they're going to try and kill you? Why wouldn't they try and kill you,
3: honestly? Uh, they're... Savage animals. They are people that are sick, really sick.
1: So, of course, the gambit here was that Donald Trump chose not to do the Republican National, uh, Republican debate that was airing at the same time and felt like he could go to this alternative news platform with Tucker Carlson and do counter programming that could pull a large audience. It seems to have done that. Uh, I think there's over 150 million views. That's a little bit of a squishy number because, of course, Twitter views mean that it could just be someone scrolling by the tweet. But the engagement is also pretty high. It seems to have done something. But is this discourse about whether or not Donald Trump is going to get... Epstein and Tucker Carlson repeatedly asking him if he thinks he's going to get killed and if S- Epstein really killed himself and if Trump feels under threat. It felt like a weird choice of a narrative sure. to compete with all of the excitement that was happening over on Fox News. I mean,
0: it was great content. I mean, we talk about uh, the Richard Epstein case a lot, the Virgin Islands case because there's obvious interest in it and it's something and there's interest in it from an from a alternative news perspective, because the mainstream media didn't take it very seriously and didn't do a good job covering it for so long. They ignored it. So that's why there's, you know, this healthy appetite for it. Tucker obviously understands that as someone who who got, you know, who is bringing some of that energy to his cable news show, is certainly bringing even more of that energy to what he's doing on Twitter X. Um, whether that is good for, like, Donald Trump's re-election prospects is another, is a totally different question. Like... Why does Donald Trump really, I mean, he, Donald Trump kind of acknowledges there. He doesn't even really think Epstein did, um, that there was something nefarious. He thinks he probably killed himself. Um, he doesn't actually sound like he thinks they're going to try to kill him. Um, he, so I, I don't know if this is good for, you know, Trump needs to explain not just You know, how he's been wronged and how everyone's after him, but he has to bring new people into the coalition, right? There weren't enough voters last time, if he's being honest with himself and if people who support him are being honest. So how do you convince new people to join his positive vision for America, whatever that might be? The more time you're spending talking about whether Epstein killed himself, that seems like not a great opportunity, although I I fully— Admit and acknowledge that people have a lot of interest in that question because we talk about it a lot too, and I so I fully understand why Tucker wants to go there and why it's a successful production on the platform. But you can have different interests here;
2: well, and not always course, have them aligned. They
1: also talked about the 2020 election. Um, Donald Trump might argue, in fact, in, in response to what you just said, that he doesn't actually need more votes; that he got more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016, which is true. But he needed his opponent to get fewer votes, and there was an argument that. Uh, voter dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party, just voter dissatisfaction in general that this is another uh, Trump-Biden matchup, which 75% of Americans absolutely don't want, will be enough to suppress Biden's numbers, presuming he's the nominee, in a way that can allow Trump to win without bringing any new people into the fold. But interestingly, during this interview, Donald Trump seemed to be skeptical that Joe Biden would actually make it to the finish line, referencing the fact that uh, Gavin Newsom in particular has shown some interest positioning himself in the ways that we discussed on this show to be the next uh, nominee, and even said that he likes and has always gotten along with Gavin Newsom.
0: I think we have that SADA actually. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and play it.
3: And the reason is because crooked Joe Biden is so bad. He's the worst president in the history of our country. I don't think he's going to make it to the gate, but, you know, you never know. But he's a corrupt person, so corrupt that I took the name off Hillary. You know, I don't do two people at one time. I took the crooked Hillary and I made it. I retired the name. It was a good day for her. I bet she was very happy. (laughs) And I used it for Joe because it's crooked Joe. But Joe is really... But you
2: don't think he's going to make it to November of 24th? Well,
3: I think he's worse uh, mentally than he is physically. And physically, he's not exactly uh, a triathlete or any kind of an athlete. You look at him, he can't walk to the helicopter. He, he walks, he can't lift his feet out of the grass. You know, it's only two inches at the White House, right? That's not a lot. But you watch him and it looks like he's walking on toothpicks. So, and then you see him in the beach where he can't lift a chair. You know, those chairs are meant to be light, right?
1: Trump said his, his job isn't beach. not <laughs> beach. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Barbie reference. Yeah. Fantastic. So, look, oh, oh, what do you make of this? I do think it's reflecting a widely held concern, including among Democrats. And I I would tend to agree with Trump. I don't think the beach is Biden's best look. But is this what you expected out of this interview?
0: Yeah. He has to say, and Trump obviously wants to point out that it's a, a physical and a mental problem yeah. for Joe Biden, not necessarily just an age problem, because Trump has the same age problem. Yeah. He's also quite old. Yeah. So he doesn't want to make about age per se, which he, he does, which he clarifies that whenever it's it's brought up. Um, look, this is a, you know, this is a moment where uh, Joe Biden is facing a lot of scrutiny for a variety of reasons, including the Hunter Biden stuff, which, you know, as you pointed out, the kind of the, the, the genie's out of the bottle on that one. Um, with respect to even mainstream media coverage Mm -hmm. of it. And that's going to put potentially Joe Biden in a very perilous position. And obviously a lot of even so many polled Democrats are not thrilled about him being their standard bearer. Um, But, I mean, the the way the way the trajectory of things looks like he will, in fact, be the nominee and that Trump will, in fact, be the nominee. If it comes down to a vote, if his I don't don't know if his legal issues mount so ferociously that he just gets tired of also—like, he—like, I—can I—running for president is another thing I have to do in addition to attending four trials that maybe he doesn't. I think that's really the only way that they don't end up being the duo. Yeah. But um, obviously there were a lot of people um, on stage for the Republican debate uh, making the case that, you know, not just should—should Trump—if if he's somehow taken out, but you should actually vote for them over Trump for the nomination, and they made that case. and. We're going to we'll discuss that, that in just a minute. Although,
1: I, I, one thing about this is that I'm surprised that Joe—sorry, uh, that the Tucker Carlson and, and Donald Trump didn't talk more about the uh, Hunter-Biden case escalations. It, it came up very tangentially. I think Donald Trump made some reference to uh, how uh, the uh, choice to censor the Biden laptop off of, of Twitter was a kind of election interference that— some expert he referenced says allotted or earned Joe Biden some large number of votes that would have been decisive if, if they hadn't actually censored that information. But he didn't take the opportunity to really hit Hunter Biden or Joe Biden vis-a-vis vis- 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 Hunter Biden. There was, of course, toward the end of the interview, after a lengthy qual- a colloquy about the Panama Canal... For some reason,
0: I'll admit I tuned out
1: for the Panama, <laughs> Panama Canal part. It was, it was entertaining in the way that Donald Trump has a way of talking about things that is yeah. really entertaining. But they finally got back on track to, in the last third of the interview talking about, of course, today where he is going to submit himself at the Fulton County uh, Courthouse for his mugshot and the charges against him. And Donald Trump reiterated a lot of the um, election I had election denial claims that he's done so far and characterized the indictment against him as uh, about him, you know, they're, they're trying to make it illegal for me to say, to investigate whether or not I won the election. They're trying to make it illegal for me to say, to contest the results of the election in the same way that Stacey Abrams did, in the same way that Hillary Clinton did. And there was some frustration I saw among I guess liberals in the media, generally speaking, that there wasn't any pushback at all from Tucker Carlson, not to say you're wrong necessarily, Mm -hmm. but even just to say, but what about the the actual charges that are being put against you in terms of the election interference charges, the fake slate of electors, the conspiracy charges here?
0: Yeah, uh, I think that was uh, sort of a missed opportunity. And, uh, you know, we we would like to hear, even because Tucker's a a friendly... um, Sure. Uh, question asker from this perspective, so it might be refreshing to hear someone who you know is is on some level rooting for Trump or yeah, a, for a lot of policies questioner. rather than a Caitlin Collins and yeah. see how he responds to that. Because
1: Trump is gonna have to respond to these charges meaningfully at some point. And so if the argument is, well, I don't want to give my legal, legal strategy, strategy away, away,
0: just like my tax returns or something. I can't. Well, I can't. <laughs> I'm still in a in a in a tizzy with the IRS, so I can't. I can't show you that. Right.
1: Sure. Yeah. But it did it did feel like a little bit of a missed opportunity and I do wonder if at some point the audience is going to get tired of him saying the same mm-hmm. pat lines which increasingly are being seen as untrue as the media is being forced through these indictments of engaging with a bunch of new material that I know the conservatives haven't really heard much before. Are you now just hearing about Michigan State officials plotting to stay overnight in the House Capitol so that they can put together a knowingly yeah. state of electors? Do you really want the public to be hit with that information in the 11th hour or do you want to do what a good lawyer will do at trial which is to get the the unfriendly stuff out of your witness on direct so it has less of a punch in the cross.
0: Well, now Trump is expected to surrender in Atlanta this evening. We will, of course, be covering that in tomorrow's show. In the meantime, more rising, more debate coverage right after this.
1: GOP candidates sparred last night in the first Republican primary debate held in Milwaukee. All eyes were on rising newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy, whose meteoric rise in the polls has rocked the dynamics of the race. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie took a jab at Ramaswamy early on, comparing him to Barack Obama. Let's watch.
4: I've had
2: enough already tonight of a guy who sounds like ChatGPT standing up here. The last person in one of these debates, Brett, who stood in the middle of the stage and said, What's a skinny guy with an odd last name doing up here? was Barack Obama, and I'm afraid we're dealing with the same type of amateur well, standing yeah. on stage tonight.
3: Come over and give me a hug.
5: <laughs> give me a hug just same, like you did to Obama. The same type of amateur. And, and you'll help elect me just with like you did to Obama, yeah, too. Yeah, give me that the Same bay bay hug, type of amateur. Hold on. Hold on.
0: Now, Ramaswamy expectedly came out swinging with a number of jabs at the competition, but perhaps tonight's most talked about moment came when he said this. Let
5: us be honest as Republicans. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. The climate change agenda is a hoax. And we have to declare independence for it. And the reality is, the anti-carbon agenda is the wet blanket on our economy. And so the reality is more people are dying of bad climate change policies than they are of actual climate Our change. Governor-
0: Polling resource organization <laughs> Navigation Research found that Ramaswamy's comment did not track well. Their independent dial on participants' attitudes dipped across the board, particularly among women. Here to break down more from last night's debate is conservative political strategist Shermichael Singleton. Thanks for joining us, Shermichael.
6: Hey, guys. Thanks for
0: having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, what was your overall impressions of how the various candidates performed last night?
6: I mean, look, I'll start with Vivek. I mean, I think he made his case uh, that he is an anti-establishment outsider and the establishment wing of the party doesn't want him a rise. And I think that's compelling to a certain uh, sector of the Republican base. But I think overall he showcased that he really lacks in some serious areas, so specifically foreign policy. I mean, I don't think... Uh, he showcased a command in terms of the Russia-Ukraine invasion. I don't think he showcased a command on the Russia-China alliance and what that means and the implications for the United States and NATO allies, specifically the Baltic states. And so, I mean, he, he was fun. He said a lot of really exciting things. He came with a significant level of energy but in my opinion he showcased himself to be someone who is just not a serious candidate on serious issues.
0: What about Ron DeSantis who, you know, has been other, the the, front, the not the front runner because it's that's, that's Trump who wasn't there last night but has been, you know, the second place person for a while though Ramaswamy's right on his tail and is actually ahead of him in some polls. Um I I thought his performance was Fine. He actually didn't really get a chance to get in the fray a lot. Um, there wasn't as much attacking him maybe as he expected. And so he didn't hit back enough in the in the if you chart, like how much time each candidate got to speak. He was in, I mean, it was kind of difference of like seconds, but he was in fourth place. You know, despite you, he, he talked less than you might expect him uh, to have done or been able to. What did you think of his performance?
6: I mean, I was actually surprised that many of the other candidates didn't go after Ron DeSantis as aggressively as they could have. I mean, the guy's number two. And if you're polling at two or three percent, Trump isn't there. And the base just doesn't want you going after Trump either way, even if he was there. So for me, I would have probably advised my candidate to to really try to make a distinction between themselves and Ron DeSantis. No one really did that. And so I think for DeSantis, his numbers maybe will move up a, a percentage point or two. But I think, largely speaking, he's going to remain in that number two position. I just don't think a candidate attacked him enough or draw a significant enough parallel between him, maybe some of his policies that may be unpopular in a general election. I think there would have been some opportunity to talk about how DeSantis going against Biden on the abortion issue uh, could jeopardize Republicans' down ballot. None of those things really came up and that surprised me so i think ron did fairly well he maintained he didn't say anything crazy the only thing robbie i would say about ron he has to work on being a more charismatic man that awkward smile to me just doesn't get it
1: <laughs> well you, you mentioned that uh, nobody really uh... raised the electoral issues that come along with some Republicans taking such a hard line on abortion, bringing up the idea of a federal six-week abortion ban. But Nikki Haley did exactly that. And I think to some positive effect, she, when asked the question about whether or not she would support a federal abortion ban, said that we have to level and be honest with the American people, that you would need a 60-senator majority to beat the filibuster on that, and that we haven't had 45— senators that were that conservative on on the abortion issue in many years, and so we should come together and and grow consensus uh, around—or design policy around the consensus issues, which she described as ending late-term abortions, which I would argue It's not real, but never mind, and and things like that. There was some chatter back and forth on the stage. But she did seem to really recognize that there was a play going on for electability in a general election, but not everybody on the stage recognized. What do you make of her debate performance?
6: I I think Nikki actually did a very, very good job. She showcased a a solid uh, understanding about foreign policy, being a former UN ambassador uh, she showcased her understanding of economics and, and what the average voter is thinking, being the former governor of, of South Carolina. And I think she's right. I mean, let's remind the audience of, what is it, Wisconsin, I believe, with Janet Protasiewicz, the Democratic uh, state Supreme Court Justice who won because of the abortion issue. You can think about states like, I believe, Arkansas, where you saw about 80-plus percent of counties that went for Trump about a year ago voted with Democrats to not have stricter abortion laws. This is an issue that really galvanizes. Democratic voters, particularly young voters, particularly women, even independent uh, swing voters who may teeter left or right do not and will not vote Republican if the abortion issue is on the ballot. And I think we've seen that across the country. I mean, I just had a fundraiser about two months ago uh, for House Republicans, and I talked to many Republicans and their staffers about this particular issue. And without going into the details, many of them hoped that abortion will not be a top issue next year because if it is it is going to be problematic for Republicans
1: yeah, everyone else also kind of ducked the question. Very few people were willing to directly say I would support a six-week p- uh, federal abortion ban. But I don't with Nikki blame Haley, them, Bree.
6: I don't blame them. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, stay with Nikki Haley for a second. You, you referenced earlier, in response to Robbie's question, that you felt that Vivek Ramaswamy was not especially strong on foreign policy. That didn't seem to be the read of the audience, and in an exchange between Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, where she accused him of not having enough experience with respect to foreign policy, she might have won. In the room. But it does seem like what is missing among all the presidential candidates, except for Vivek Ramaswamy and maybe Ron DeSantis, is an acknowledgement that there is a significant appetite among Republican voters for a sort of isolationist approach to especially the Ukraine war, but generally speaking. So, what do you think the other candidates can do to negotiate this reality? Because they don't seem to be willing to lean in and listen to the public's interest in not funding forever wars, not funding proxy wars against Russia, and instead using resources here to take care of people at home.
6: I mean, look, that, that's a that's a fair point. I mean, we've seen the polling data over the past couple of weeks that most Americans, not even Republicans, Democratic voters, independent voters are sort of being fed up, if you will, with the significant amount of money we're sending over to Ukraine. Most people just don't understand. They're thinking, why in the world have we sent over $100 billion to what's going on in a foreign country that I'm not even familiar with? Most people never even heard of it prior to seven, eight, nine months ago. And so I think that's a valid critique, but there is a reason uh, why we're sort of in the midst of this proxy war with with Russia. We do have interests in that part of the world, and I think uh, Democratic and Republican candidates alike need to be very detailed, nuanced in explaining why that is important to America's global interests. With that said, if you look at the polling data on this, Brie, to your point about Republican voters not wanting uh, candidates to uh, adopt the position of supporting Ukraine. That's Donald Trump's line. Uh, from a polling perspective as a strategist, I'm looking at where Trump stands on this and I'm looking at someone like Vivek Ramaswamy and I'm saying to myself, if I'm advising Vivek, you're not going to take votes away from Donald Trump. You'll get some applause from some of Donald Trump's supporters, Uh, but then there are going to be other Republican voters who are going to recognize the importance of this conflict and they're going to disagree with you. So I guess my question would be for Vivek and his supporters, what lane exactly is he trying to, to line himself up with here and where are those voters going to come from? They're not going to come from Trump. They're not going to come from about the 30% of other Republicans who would disagree with him on that position. Uh, And so in my opinion, he's a guy on an island alone, merely getting applause.
0: Yeah, that was the exact question that a lot of pundits had about his performance. He was earning, Ramaswamy earned a lot of attention for um, how he handled Donald Trump. Um, Let's watch some of that.
5: President Trump, I believe, was the best president of the 21st century. It's a fact, and Chris Christie, Honest to God, your claim that Donald Trump is motivated by vengeance and grievance would be a lot more credible if your entire campaign were not based on vengeance and grievance against one man. And if people at home want to see a bunch of people blindly bashing Donald Trump without an iota of vision for this
1: country, they could just change
5: the channel to MSNBC right now.
1: Yeah, so, Michael, this is the question. If Donald Trump is the best president of the 20th century, 21st century, why is Vivek Ramaswamy running?
6: Well, that, that that's my thing. I mean, it's like, is this guy chasing a shadow here? Or, uh, Bree, is he running for second place? And I, I, I suppose if he's running for second place, although he's publicly stated, there is no way I would consider uh, a VP Not Come on, that, that's not realistic. If, if the nominee says, hey, I'm thinking about selecting you. I've been through this process with three presidential candidates. I worked for the Trump administration. Most people are going to say, well, you know, let me let me think about it. I mean, how serious uh, is this consideration? And so, again, I'm not exactly sure what Vivek's long-term game is. Maybe he's trying to build name ID. Uh, maybe he'll set up his own political operation in a few months once he dro- drops out of this race. Or, as I stated, maybe there is a hope that Donald Trump will consider him to be a running mate. I would... Hopefully, disagree that the president, former president, wouldn't do that. I don't really see what Vivek would bring uh, to the table. Donald Trump has that lane covered. He needs someone that can pull in swing voters because this is going to be another very, very tight race. You're looking at a difference of what eighty plus thousand votes across four or five states. Uh, So, so that's the way I see this.
1: In your estimation, who would be a better running mate for Donald Trump to pull in swing voters? I would look at someone like Nikki Haley. Republicans,
6: we have to regain some level of trust and confidence with women particularly independent voters when you start breaking down some of those cross states and you look at the math uh... pennsylvania georgia uh, iowa arizona etc you're looking at differences of sometimes fifteen 000 to twenty five thousand votes sometimes the differences are a lot larger depending on the state uh... but if i'm looking at that calculus and i'm looking at some of those precincts where that trump won in sixteen but he barely lost in in twenty twenty against biden I'm asking one fundamental question. What will it take to get those people to come back to our side? The economy is going to certainly help. I think this proxy war with with Ukraine, Russia is going to help for a lot of people. Crime is going to be an issue for a lot of people. But if the abortion issue comes up, some folks are going to say, you know, I just don't know if I can stick with Trump. Some of Trump's pronouncements about individuals in politics generally speaking, people just do not like. They see he has a lot of character flaws as many voters have described it. So you need someone to sort of calm down some of those concerns from voters. And I think having a woman, particularly a woman who I think is more so on the middle of the abortion issue, would be a strategic uh, move for the former president, and it could help him uh, regain the White House
0: again. We'll we'll see about that. I noted that there was a commercial with South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem during the debates, who seems, to my mind, a potential likely VP choice, um, regardless of who the nominee is, even if somehow is is someone other than Trump. Shermichael Michael Singleton, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Thanks so much, guys. A pleasure to be here.
1: The Wagner Group and Putin ally turned enemy, Evgeny Prigozhin, was killed when a plane he was traveling in crashed in northwest Moscow yesterday. Russian state media confirms there were no survivors. Prigozhin, once one of Vladimir Putin's closest allies, formed the private military Wagner Group in 2014 as a proxy to support Russia's objectives in the region. Now Prigozhin split with Putin over Russia's invasion of Ukraine this year and actually launched a failed rebellion of sorts against Putin back in June. When questioned outside the White House yesterday, President Joe Biden said all things considered, speculation the crash was actually an assassination is probably true.
3: I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised.
1: Do you think
0: really people
3: are There's not much that happens in Russia not behind, but I don't know enough to know the answer. I've been working out for the last hour and a half.
0: Now, Biden isn't the only one who openly predicted Prigozhin's death. Just last month, Secretary of State Antony Blinken commented, If I were Mr. Prigozhin, I would remain very concerned. NATO has an open-door policy. Russia has an open-windows policy. And he needs to be very focused on that. The Kremlin, of course, has yet to comment. Joining us now to weigh in, editor of The Gray Zone, Max Blumenthal. Um, I'm just going to say it. I absolutely think Putin had the plane shot down, and of course we need to wait for more information. But that is my. I would. I would bet. I would bet good money on that. Um, What's your uh, view of what has transpired?
7: Well, I've been working out for the last hour and a half, so I really can't comment.
0: I, don't, I haven't been paying you, you, you have a running push-up count, and you're a thousand one, thousand two. Okay, I'll take your comment now. Yeah, yeah.
7: It's actually just physical therapy. I was just lying there, but um, <laughs> no, Robbie. I mean, there's, I can't speculate, and that would be something that would be logical to deduce based on everything that's happened. The fact that not only Evgeny Prigozhin, but several other lieutenants of his key figures in the Wagner leadership were on that flight. Uh, The Kremlin has faced so many challenges to its leadership. Uh, The primacy of the Kremlin is of absolute importance to the Russian leadership not just Putin, but also the military leadership. And the collapse that we saw of Russia in the 1990s came about through the erosion of the Kremlin's primacy. So here comes a major threat to the Kremlin's leadership from Prigozhin, a longtime business associate of Putin from Putin's days in St. Petersburg. And he actually staged what amounted to a coup They managed to come to some kind of detente and throughout the last few weeks and months, we could have imagined that the uh, Russian intelligence services and the Kremlin itself were looking for the right opportunity to head off this rogue element. No country would allow uh, an element like that to function within its realm. However, there are many other people and elements that might want to kill him from mafias to Uh, Western governments to the Ukrainians, Uh, Prigozhin was returning from Africa where Wagner Group is bolstering the popular coup governments in Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger apparently. And this is a major threat to Western dominance in a resource rich region. So I can only speculate, but I can also tell you that telegram channels that are pro Kremlin uh, or very, and very supportive of the war effort. Russian nationalist channels, uh, s- some of them are celebrating what took place. Well, and I was, hearkening back to comments by Putin when he said, There's one thing I cannot forgive,
1: and that is disloyalty. Well, help us understand what happens next, because as you pointed out, the Wagner Group has been really instrumental in some of the biz- biggest successes for Russia in the war in Ukraine. And as you just uh, referenced, in uh, bolstering supporting some of these popular coup governments in Western Africa before the coup attempt um, the perception was that it was this kind of significant asset for the Kremlin insofar as it was described to me by an expert as a as a group that doesn't do anything without, Kremlin's control, but still has plausible deniability and is able to be this very effective pseudo-independent arm of the Russian government. What happens now to the Wagner Group, generally speaking? Can it continue and be useful and successful for the Kremlin going forward with just different leadership? Or is it over?
7: Well, the plausible deniability has been gone for some time following the abortive coup by Prigozhin, Putin announced that the Kremlin or the Russian state had been sponsoring the Wagner group to the tune of over $80 billion. That was after he denied any involvement with Wagner. Uh, now, I think the relationship between between the Russian state and the Wagner group will deepen and intensify. There's, of course, a second line of lieutenants behind Prigozhin. Uh So I think Wagner PMC will continue on any of these Western uh, think tank experts who are saying it's gone, uh, it can no longer function, should not be listened to, uh, but it will be a tool of the Russian state to carry out Russian operations, soft and both soft and hard power. I mean, they do propaganda, information operations out of the Ivory Coast, in Africa and other sensitive areas, and it's funny to me. I can't go on without noticing how Prigozhin is being portrayed in Western media now. It's as if he's Solzhenitsyn or uh, Tolstoy or something, that he's yes. just his only crime was writing some satirical novel about Putin. Uh, he was referred to as a dissident by the New York Post. And if you watch closely, Nikki Haley was openly lamenting his killing as though he were some uh, brave political activist who'd been thrown out of a window. Um, and that is not the case. This yes. is someone who... Uh, If you look at what happened to the Oath Keepers, these septuagenarian Oath Keepers on January 6th, this is a figure that very few countries would tolerate in their midst.
0: Right, and I think you're correct to bring up. You know, if we recall, sort of the um, the mainstream media coverage of 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 the of the march, the Wagner Group's march, um, uh, challenge to Putin, it was very um, a very breathless, very oh, this is the moment everything falls apart for Putin. Similar to the whole, you know, Ukraine is just about to win the war against Russia. That that sort of very hopeful, wishful thinking accompanied a lot of how the Wagner Group was being described. I think by uh, by. By, by mainstream media, so this is a. It in a give it given, again. Given that I I do suspect um, Putin had him taken out here. That's kind of it's kind of a blow as well to the mainstream narrative that uh, that that Putin is so weak and is about to be taken out of power and Russia is about to be defeated by Ukraine. Nope, nope, and nope.
7: Yeah, completely. When 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 Prigozhin launched his march north toward Moscow, the main the corporate media, it was one of the few times they broke away from their weekly Trump indictments. It was like the only thing that could get them mm-hmm. to break away. And you could practically feel from here in Washington along the K Street think tank corridor, a collective orgasm as Progosian's march continued. Then when it stopped, as I expected it would, and negotiations took place and the Kremlin began to assert itself. It was coitus interruptus for the arms industry-funded, lanyard-wearing beltway think tankers <laughs> who exist to fantasize about Russia returning to the 90s where it's balkanized and oligarchs are suddenly taking control of its resources and selling it off and shipping away state assets to the West. So the elimination of Pergosion serves obviously the Kremlin's interests, and, and cuts against the agenda of balkanizing and weakenizing Russia by uh, undercutting its centralized economic and political model. And so if you look at who benefits, I would say the Russian state benefits. That doesn't mean that there aren't other in- interests involved or other elements who might want to create more friction between Putin and Wagner. I'm just speculating. But mm-hmm. I, think it's, I, th- I think it's pretty obvious who benefits. Yeah.
1: I did see some speculation that the CIA or some American I- I- interest might have been involved. How <laughs> likely do you think that is? Is that just kind of wishful thinking?
7: Well, it's just weird after the Krogosian's march that everybody from the Atlantic Council or former CIA director David Petraeus or Tony Blinken himself were fantasizing about him being thrown out of a window or thrown off a balcony. Uh, they were basically trying to portray Putin as some um, mafiosi thug uh, with dirty hands. And yeah. at the same time, I mean, the fan- the fantasy, could that have been a threat? Who Who's to say? Hmm. Uh, Putin has uh, announced today that prigozhin played an important role in Ukraine, um, <sighs> that they had worked together in business and they were friends at one point. He announced an investigation. I mean, you you, you kind of have to do that. It's not like he's gonna come yeah. out and take credit and say, uh, you know, f around and find out, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I bet he's uh, he's really gonna shed some some tears, some some big uh, fat crocodile tears at that funeral. Uh, Max Blumenthal, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Yeah, I just want to say though, I'm speculating. Pergausian's sure. death had been predicted, or uh, we, he was pronounced dead in 2019 after a plane crash. So all uh-huh. of every, this entire discussion could prove untrue at some point. Just yeah. want to like, just want to give myself a caveat there. Fair enough. But thank you we, for me.
0: Fair enough. And we appreciate the, uh, you know, the hesitant uh, tone. We're all reporters. <laughs> you know, we want to not be sensationalist and uh, make sure viewers get the truth. Thanks very much. Appreciate it. 2024 hopeful Vivek Ramaswamy actually sparred over the indictments of former President Donald Trump on an episode of his show. Let's watch.
3: I need you to find me 11,780 more votes. Now that alone, if I just had that, wouldn't that be a case? I what? need you to find me, he's saying and, to them. And the, they didn't do it, right? But that, oh, so, yes, so, I tried so to rob is, a bank the
5: what, other what day law, and I didn't what is, get the money. What law, I mean, here's where I'm at. What, not every bad judgment or every bad act is a crime. Oh my God. What law did that violate? He's the president. What law did that violate? T-
3: uh, probably the oath of office that he took when he would that's, that's defend not, the United States. That's not, what not is something more we could, send,
5: I mean, George Bush violated the oath of office What is more?
3: when he sent, when he sent troops to Iraq.
5: You know, this is why we vote people out. That's how elections work. I know, but... So I I think that's the fundamental difference in how we do things in the United States, where you're taking deeply held judgments that you disagree with.
3: Great, go to the ballot box, vote.
5: That's how we do things in the United States of America.
3: Which is exactly what, what exactly what he's on trial for.
1: So there are a number of laws at issue, and anyone who reads the Georgia indictment can discover what those are, including uh, prohibitions against uh, solicitations to commit election fraud and the like. Moreover, I think that Bill Maher did a disservice to the argument because, in fact, there is a lot more than what was right. on the Bill of Raffensperger call. There is evidence of a conspiracy headed by Donald Trump to— have various election officials in seven states across the United States of America knowingly put together false states of electors that not reflect the democratic will of the people in those states that said, despite there being no evidence of fraud or that Trump had duly won the election, that he had won the election, the John Eastman memo, John Eastman who put together this plan, said that he knew those false states of electors would be, quote, dead on arrival. He did not believe that they were actually accurate, true, or would hold up in the court of law. However, the plan was not just to have the state of electors carry the day. The plan was that the, the the confusion, the ambiguity on the day that the slate of electors would be submitted would be sufficient to justify Mike Pence sending those slates of electors to the, the sending the, the vote to the legislatures as the Constitution permits when there is genuine ambiguity so that the legislators can decide the outcome of the election, knowing that the, the legislator count meant that Donald Trump would still win. Right.
0: What, what Vivek got right in that exchange is that violating the oath of office is, in fact, not a crime. If that's all it was, it would be, you know, a reason for sure. impeachment, which is what they actually did. Sure. Um it, it, I, the call itself—you know, obviously, we have to wait to see what kind of defense Trump yeah. mounts. If he mounts a—you know, that wasn't an act, a request to find votes I didn't believe existed, but votes that I had been told had not been counted. Of course, as you point out, there's a lot more to the Georgia indictment in terms of um, uh, forgery of documents, yes. in terms of trying to acquire information from Dominion. That the poll the worker intimidation. That the associates are going to—I mean, the reason this is going to be a very difficult case for Trump is because there's so many other people charged with um, more obvious criminal components that they're involved in, and they're going to flip, and they're going to say Trump knew about it, and it's going to be a tough uh, situation for him. We're talking about Vivek Ramaswamy a lot today because he had a big moment in the debate um, last night. I know there was more that you wanted to bring up with him. Yeah,
1: so principally there is this question of Vivek Ramaswamy distinguished himself in many ways by being the Trump on the stage. By not backing down from questions about whether or not uh, he would support Donald Trump if he were to be uh, elected president of the United States, or, or sorry, if he went, were to win the nomination, uh, saying that Donald Trump was the best president of the 21st century, maybe of the 20th century, uh, and so 21st the, century. I think
0: he left the 20th he, century the open. 20th? I think he said 21st century. Well,
1: then that's a small pool to be pulling well, Right. <laughs> but okay, fine, fair enough. But the question is, if Donald Trump is still such a great president, it yeah. can be forgotten watching the debate last night since Donald Trump wasn't there. But since Donald Trump is in fact in the race and is leading by like forty points. Why are you running the Vertical well, response He's gotta
0: win so he can pardon Trump.
1: Well he's not gonna win. That's the whole point. Like why are you running when when Donald Trump is clearly the front runner uh, and is doing very well and is basically the same version of you, but with a much broader base of national support. And so what came really interesting during the debate is the same kind of ire that you saw from uh, Bill Maher there was expressed by several folks on the debate stage in a way that I think went beyond the... The Ron DeSantis memo that told him, the Super PAC memo that told him to go after Vivek Ramaswamy, it seemed to be a kind of organic frustration that came out of the statements that Vivek was making on the stage, not just related to his defense of Trump, but generally speaking, a kind of a mood and attitudinal. Choice that he was Mm -hmm. making, and also some statements that he made that were patently and provably contradictory to things that he had made in the past. And it did seem like people were bristling at the idea that he plays potentially fast and loose with the facts. And I want to go through a a, a couple of these. One of the most uh, notable moments, a ding by Chris Christie, which had Vivek Ramaswamy quiet for the next 20 or 30 minutes of the debate in a notable void, was that he accused him of stealing Barack Obama's... Line from 2008 about how he was a, uh, a skinny guy with a weird name on the stage. Can we play that clip? A worker's son who dares to defy the odds. The hope of a skinny kid with a funny name who believes that America has a place for him, too. So Vivek Ramaswamy really did say, like almost verbatim, what Barack Obama said there. Is that a crime there. though? Who cares? Wait a minute. Uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Chris Christie calls him out on this. He says, you know, you're you're telling everybody else here that we have canned lines and that we're giving old Republican Party lines that nobody cares about, which I think is a legitimate criticism of Vivek Ramaswamy. They were doing stale rehashed lines. But can you really accuse somebody of doing exactly that when you have not only taken somebody else's line from over a decade ago, who is not even your ideological... A, a parallel, who is not even someone that you agree with, someone who you would, you you want to ding Chris Christie for hugging Barack Obama, but you're going to literally take his line in the debate. I mean, Chris, I think a lot of people didn't really recognize that how closely Ramaswamy's was aped what Barack Obama had said, and Chris Christie's line didn't land especially well, I think, with at least half of the audience. But what do you make of someone who would, at, at the same time, they accuse other, of other of, of somebody else of 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 doing exactly what he was doing that very moment. In fact, Chris Christie started mouthing one of um, uh, Vivek Ramaswamy's lines along with him as he said it because it was so predictable what Vivek Ramaswamy was going to say because it was so canned.
0: Look, there's no debate. We just played the clip that it is exactly what Obama said. Um, I don't know if people are going to care about it. I I, I don't. Care? We'll see. Our, the viewers are going to have to let us know in the comments if they were motivated by Christie's dig at him there, that he was—and uh, and you're right that he, that he came after Christie for being too close to Obama. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that it really matters. Um, you know, Obama was also a like very charismatic and successful political performer, regardless of what you think of his policies. So, you know, modeling himself in that way is not necessarily such a, from a tactical standpoint, is not a crazy thing to do.
1: It's not a crazy thing to do, but it's a really odd thing to do when you're talking about running as a very different kind of candidate than Barack Obama. It also reads to me as really inauthentic. You you don't have your own personal story? You're just gonna ape somebody else's? Here's another example of that. He said that his parents came here 40 years ago with no money and use this uh, to say something about uh, the American dream uh, and how I guess America is a great country at the same time, of course, that he is advocating for from a policy perspective, cutting a lot of the social benefits that make people want to come to America and thrive in America in the first instance. Specifically, he wants to end the LBJ, uh, Great Society programs, including Medicare for All and Medicaid. But what people is People come to America to, to take
0: advantage of our great social safety net programs? I mean, that's not-
1: they do, but that's not my point. The point that I'd like to make is that he was lying about his parents and how much money they had when they came to the United States. So he described his parents as coming here 40 years ago with nothing. It's a quick hop, quick, uh, hop skip, and jump to his Wikipedia to, d- to find out that his father was a graduate of a prestigious, both of his parents of prestigious universities in um, India, worked as an engineer and patent attorney for General Electric, while his mother was a graduate of a uh, Mysore Medical College and Research Institute and worked as a geriatric psychiatrist. In so we had two professional, um, well-to-do parents in India. He comes from a Brahmin caste, the highest caste in India. There's no indication that they were anything less than upper class, uh, middle class, maybe potentially upper middle, upper middle class or affluent See, in India. I mean,
0: we don't know. That. Well, in India, but, sure, but when they come here,
1: so the question is. Why represent yourself as a poor immigrant family that came here with no money in their pocket? With no money, he says. I came here to, I came to this country with no money 40 years ago. When obviously they came to this country with enormous advantages over millions of Americans who are struggling. Today, with high inflation, terrible. I mean, we don't cost know exactly what
0: situation they were in when they came here. I, don't, I mean, Im- immigrating is an expensive and difficult and lengthy process. Which is why and most
1: immigrants to the United States, legal immigrants, are very affluent, or much, are on average much more affluent than the average American.
0: Right. I, I think it's. I think we would need more information to say. I don't think we need exactly more information at, at all. A lie. I but. think that it's
1: pretty clear that the the his parents did not come here with no money. So the question is again, why is he trying to appropriate? other people's life experiences, his story is perfectly legitimate. Can't he just run as a successful guy who made a lot of money in business, who's a good business guy and has great ideas for the country? Why do you need to do this cosplay where you're pretending to be Barack Obama or alternatively pretending to be somebody else's working class migrant family when that wasn't your your, well, your own story? Well, and then the last point, the last pretty obviously easy to fact check inconsistency that came up was this, was the the moment about the climate hoax. So. This was a widely covered. We talked about it in another segment. We played that clip in another in another segment. But he says that he didn't be, he said that the, the, the climate change uh, was a hoax. There have been, in the last few months, recordings of him saying the opposite, that he does believe that climate change is real. Uh, and I think that we have the clip of him previously s- sounding very different than he did at the debate now.
5: Climate change again is a hoax. Climate change is also real. Mm-hmm. I'm not denying the, under reality of the underlying reality that global surface temperatures are going up, and in part due to human activity. This Climate change is again dangerous. is a hoax.
0: Well, I, I think he was—what he said in the debate is that he thinks the re, some of the, the policy responses to climate change are more destructive than climate change itself. He did say that, that which is also deeply position, um,
1: untrue. I
0: don't Estimates know are that about 2 untrue. million people
1: have died from climate change globally in the last, I think, uh, 10 years or so.
0: Right, but uh, we're all or maybe it was lifted 50 years. up by the energy production and the—fewer I mean, the, 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 right. people die from climate— well, Robbie, that's not the question. Th- the th-
1: question is, do, did more people—who wh- are the 2 million people who died from climate change policies, what those are, as compared to the two million people who have died from It's all the people who don't change. die
0: because we live in a more affluent, more technological society because of But that's not what he said. talking about. He
1: said more people die from climate change policies than from climate people change— People
0: die of poverty when they don't have access right. to— Right.
1: Well, he can make that argument, but that's not the argument well, that he made on exactly the debate what stage. That's exactly the
0: he's making, but we'll that, leave that it— That's
1: not—but we can't wait, leave it at that because I have one more point that I'd like to make.
0: <laughs> no, we've got to leave it at that.
1: The point that I would like to make is that, uh, specifically, the, the, the question I think that Americans have to deal with is, if, some, if he is someone who is fairly new to the debate stage, moving to the political scene, who is quite obviously saying things within a couple of months that are very different from one thing or another. And in the face of a question, the specific question that they got about climate change is, do you believe it's man-made? And there was supposed to be a hand-raising question about it The hand-raising that, questions are all—they're BS. They're transparently
0: we BS. Ronda Sanders was quickly. right to call them it, because these things are more complicated than a yes or no answer, and it's 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 ridiculous to force oh, the can, candidates to can doing that
1: Quickly, if we would just, I I I would just let you. you, Okay, I
0: will sit here silently while you list off your problems with the Akramaswamy.
1: Silently, I know that you have to wrap. I know that you have something to get to. There were a couple of points, a, a, a a bunch of important things that didn't come up in other segments that I think are important to talk about. Go ahead. The direct question was do you believe that climate change is real? And there was a pivot. There was, you're right, he did caveat his answer to say something about, I think that climate policy is a hoax, some, something like that verbiage. But that, again, is an example of him evading a core truth. Do you think, uh, the, the core of the question, do you actually think that climate change science is real? At another point, as we just watched, he said clearly the answer is yes. He believes that there's that climate change is real and it's caused by human beings. Why is it that he can't give those kind of straight answers at the debate? And my only point is that I think that the frustrations that came out across the stage among the other people were not just that he's ahead and he's winning and that he's getting applause lines—that's legitimate to be upset about—but he did a good job on those things. But the fact that he's seeming to get away with what are lies or at least dramatic inconsistencies with what he said before. And how long is that going to last before that bubble pops? Well,
0: I'm genuinely, I don't know, and I'm genuinely curious to see what our viewers in particular think about Vivek Ramaswamy's performance and his views and his policies. So do let us know in the comments um, how much you like the guy, what your thoughts were, and we'll have more rising right after this.
1: Robbie, I hear you have a radar for us today. What is on your mind? Well, Vivek Ramaswamy
0: is clearly having a moment, an entrepreneur with no political experience whatsoever. The fast-talking Republican presidential aspirant has risen rapidly in the polls. Some of them, he has even surpassed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to take second place. Former President Donald Trump remains the runaway leader, of course. Now heading into last night's debate, Ramaswamy definitely had a spotlight on him that shone ever brighter as he picked fights with the other candidates. He attacked former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie for speaking out against Trump and claimed that former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley was angling for a job at a defense contractor. Ramaswamy frequently enjoyed the crowd's support, and some of his most popular remarks were grounded in libertarian and non-interventionist notions on foreign policy. In particular, Ramaswamy distinguished himself from every other candidate on the debate stage, with the possible exception of DeSantis, who hit many of the same notes, by refusing to co-sign the neoconservatism of his rivals. The only war that I will declare as president is the war on the federal administrative state, he said. Let's watch some of his remarks
3: you would not support an increase of funding to ukraine i would
5: not and i think that this is disastrous that we are protecting against an invasion across somebody else's border when we should use those same military resources to prevent across the invasion of our own southern border here in the united states of america we are driving russia further into china's hands the russia china alliance is the single greatest threat we face and i find it offensive that we have professional politicians on the stage that will make a pilgrimage to Kiev, to their pope, Zelensky, without doing the same thing for people in Maui or the south side of Chicago okay. right, or Kensington. Amen. I Hold think on. that we have to put Amen. the interests of Americans first. He was Secure to... our own border instead of
0: somebody else's. Was... Ramaswamy was adamant that he would not support additional military aid to Ukraine. Now, this stance put him at odds with every other candidate, again, save for DeSantis, But it's increasingly popular with the GOP base. A recent CNN poll found that 71 percent of Republicans do not want Congress to authorize more funding, 69 percent believe that the U.S. has already done enough. Ramaswamy has also proposed cutting military assistance to Israel, a stance that earned Haley's ire on the debate stage, but again is supported by many Libertarian adjacent political figures and tracks with Americans general disdain for foreign aid. Though, of course, Americans do tend to overestimate exactly how much money the government is giving to other governments. Now, one reason for Trump's conquest of the Republican Party was that he broke with GOP orthodoxy on foreign policy. He called the Iraq War a mistake. He pledged to pull U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. It was his plan Biden was committed to. These ideas were anathema to party leadership. Though anti-war Republican candidates who preceded Trump, including most notably Ron Paul in 2008 and 2012, showed that non-interventionism was broadly popular among the base. The rank-and-file lost faith in Bush-era nation building long before GOP leaders realized it, and Trump's successful run was a wake-up call. Though, of course, Trump did fail to pursue genuinely anti-interventionist policies. On the contrary, he, for some reason, installed former Bush administration official John Bolton as national security advisor. See how that worked out. Now, Ramaswamy seems poised to capture some of this same Trumpian energy. Much like Trump, his foreign policy prescriptions, not, again, entirely non-interventionist. Like Trump, he's hawkish on China. He also proposed militaristic policies to deal with the U.S. southern border, suggesting that resources currently being sent to Ukraine should actually be redirected there. Now, this would involve a massive escalation of police and military power, and you can't really say you're a fully anti-war candidate if you think the U.S. military should invade Mexico. However, on this issue, he wasn't good company. Most of the candidates up there wanted to do the exact same thing on the southern border. In distinguishing himself from the rest of the pack on Ukraine funding and some other issues that the GOP foreign policy consensus blundered four years, creating that opening for Trump, Ramaswamy played last night's debate smartly, and I would expect his poll numbers have not hit the ceiling yet. Let's just ask these people.
5: Anyone think Chris Christie did the best? He certainly got most of the airtime. A lot of the airtime, not most of the airtime. How about Ron DeSantis? How many of you think Ron DeSantis did the best? That's two people. How about Nikki Haley? One, two, three, four people. Asa Hutchinson? Mike Pence? Zero. Vivek Ramaswamy? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Tim Scott? Okay, so this panel here thinks Ramaswamy won the debate.
0: So look, love love him or hate him, I think it it was his night um, in many ways. Uh, He he had a a lot of attention going into it because of his rising poll numbers. He managed to capture the spotlight. He fought with the other candidates. I know you're no fan and you have uh, you know plenty of criticisms of him, and I have criticisms of him as well. But I did find it interesting that you know why do the other candidates, with the exception of DeSantis don't grasp the shifting um, Republican consensus on Ukraine funding in particular. It's so reminiscent of Iraq and Afghanistan and other foreign policy positions that the GOP establishment was committed to, even as it was increasingly clear that actual Republican voters don't want that.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't think they don't grasp it. Let's say that. I think that they have some combination of a genuine ideological belief that it's necessary to fight this proxy war and also, as Ramaswamy said, a lot of them have personal investments in the military-industrial complex. Nikki Haley, being an, a former ambassador, he accused her of uh, going out for a job for Raytheon, Raytheon or something and like that. And, and the revolving door is what it is. Uh, the current Secretary of Defense was a former Raytheon board member. I mean, there's nothing but truth in those kinds of statements. But that's also why so many other people on both sides of the aisle—the blob is bipartisan— refuse to ever be critical of the military-industrial complex. Now, I think that you were right to point out, my, my criticism would be. Not that that is a bad approach. I think I agree with him on that. But how much confidence do I have that he's actually an anti-interventionist who will do the more important thing than simply focusing on the war in, in Ukraine and Uh, Russia, but actually want to cut America's war budget, because what we saw when when I asked this question pointedly to Marjorie Taylor Greene, a question which every journalist should be asking all of these candidates, if you were sincerely invested in being anti-war, is, are you against the war in Ukraine, because that's Biden's war, or are you actually for cutting the military budget, and if so, by how much, and let's talk that through, because Marjorie Taylor Greene said no, and Vivek Ramaswamy saying that he wants to divert those exact funds to the border to invade Mexico, Suggest to me and to also escalate with China over Taiwan doesn't seem to me like the actual voice of an anti-war candidate. So, no, I I wish that he had some more follow-through with those anti-war bona fides. I just don't know that I saw that uh, coming out on the stage last night.
0: Right. And as I said in my radar, his remarks about the southern border were well in keeping with what everyone else said up there. Um, I I would encourage these candidates to think through a little bit more. I mean, does the federal government— have the authority to actually like start a war on Mexican territory no. again <laughs> without congressional approval? Do right. we want if we're redirecting the, the resources sent to Ukraine? Are we going to put cluster bombs in in uh, in uh, like along our own border again? For the we talk about the the potential catastrophe of people stumbling across those things a year later. So that's not a policy I, I would support, um, and I think they should think through it more. But um...
1: another thing, from a funding perspective, as everyone's talking about fiscal responsibility. So Nikki Haley had this really interesting moment, where she pointed out that Trump and the Trump administration, including Mike Pence, bear significant responsibility for the deficit. Now. I'm not the intended audience for that, but I did find that to be kind of refreshing Mm -hmm. because liberals often point out that the uh, Republicans in office tend to run up the deficit and Democrats in office tend to run it back down. Um, And so she specifically pointed to uh, that Pence responded, well, it was uh, we had to spend on the military, but only a small fraction of that was military spending, a significant amount, of course, uh, $2.5 trillion of that was in the Trump tax cuts, which many people on that stage, one, explicitly said that they would. Want to extend, mm-hmm. uh, c- putting a, an additional uh, burden on the on the deficit. At the same time, that there seemed to be broad support for cutting the Department of Education, ostensibly to save money. When the Department of Education funding is only eighty billion dollars, compared to the trillions well, of dollars that we're talking about with respect I mean, to ta- Republicans the tax cuts.
0: Definitely want to do tax cuts. Um, Republican voters want. Don't, don't want higher taxes. So we're doing tax cuts. the Trump tax But cuts. you're right. Let's talk right. about what
1: those are, though. These are tax cuts, 85 percent, eighty-five cents of every dollar, of which went to the top 1%.
0: Yeah. On the Republican side, that's not an issue. But you're right that we well, can't—
1: <laughs> Republican voters don't care that the rich are getting the tax breaks no, no. Repu- and they're not again, getting a tax Republican
0: cut? Republican voters want tax—I mean, they want a tax cut. Everyone I, needs to get a tax I, cut. I
1: support a tax cut for the poor, but that's not what the Republicans have designed over and over and over again. They're okay. making poor people in America gamble, leverage their future so that the rich can get richer in the short
0: Republican term. Republicans. Again, don't care about that. We're cutting taxes, but you're right to balance the budget. It, to, to do that, Nikki Haley was right that it, the Republicans have put no emphasis, whatever, uh, whatsoever, on controlling spending, and that needs to be done. So Nikki Haley said a lot of reasonable things, including in that you, you, I'm, I'm glad she brought that up. And Republicans need to be held accountable for their failed promises on controlling spending. But then she's she's slagging Ramaswamy for saying that he would cut, that he doesn't think Israel deserves special and above yeah, that's the, uh, military funding status. <laughs> so how are yeah. we, if we can't, if we can't even reduce Israel to getting the amount of aid that just the other, we give other countries, you'll never constrain spending. Yeah. You'll Look, never, so Nick, we, we got to cut the, de- yeah, the Department Nikki, of Education Nikki, and everything
1: else. Yeah, Nikki Haley is, is no champion here with this sort of She's so out of step. I will say about Nikki Haley, let me just correct my numbers. Jeff Stein at the, the Washington Post specifically said that the, extending the GOP tax cuts will cost 3.3 tr- trillion. Eliminating the Department of ed- ed- Education uh, would only get you 80 billion dollars a year. Right, but but, but we've back, got back commerce, to
0: housing, we've got we can go. It, you can little, yeah. you can
1: multiply 80 billion times well, 10 and still not even get to I a would, trillion. <laughs> I would
0: cut the defense bill, uh, budget in half, and I would do a lot with entitlements, and I I, I could get us there. It's a it's a it's a, I can I but that, can shrink that's, that's that high down. That's not the question.
1: Down. You're not the one running for president, Robbie. People who are running for president are saying they want to extend the tax cuts for the rich at a cost of trillions of dollars to the deficit and act and sell to the American people that they're balancing the budget by, by yeah. cutting uh, services and cutting jobs that are not actually going to touch the amount of money that they want to keep spending on tax cuts and apparently also well, we sending troops to uh, yeah. Mexico. Uh, but the, the one story. other thing I want to I say with about that. Nikki Haley is even though uh, I would agree that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy had the biggest night, when you go to that panel that you had at the end of this there the second most hands went up for Nikki Haley. And I do think in terms of the biggest delta between what was expected of their performance and Mm -hmm. how they actually did perform, Nikki Haley was an unexpected standout. We have seen her in a debate context before and have been unimpressed. But the energy that she brought last night and the kind of competency and gravitas on the stage was really quite unexpected to me.
0: Well, it goes to show you the personality does really matter because yes, in that uh, little uh, reaction, uh, those GOP people reacting, right, the the two candidates they like the best were Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley, even though those two were at each other's throats and and to the extent that there are profound disagreements on policy, they actually did have profound disagreements on policy. But, you know, actual voters are a mix of having ideological notions and also who do I like and what personality and energy matters. And those two had that and some of the others didn't.
1: It's also worth noting that that panel seemed to only have two women in it that I could count. mm -hmm. Um, And at least one of them raised their hand for Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley, I do think, was surprisingly strong on the abortion issue in a way that I think would make a lot of Democrats, yeah. frankly, comfortable voting for her. And if at the end of the day, Republicans' biggest concern is that abortion being on the docket will get Democrats who aren't that enthusiastic about Joe Biden out of their homes into the polls. Someone like Nikki Haley is a lot less scary than someone like Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, who have been very aggressive about the idea of you know being who's great on of, this? Bans, of
0: federal bans Doug on abortion. Doug Burgum, who's a very almost throwback, stereotypical, I think, conservative, the uh, governor of North Dakota brought out his pocket constitution, said, sorry, there's nothing in here that allows the federal government to have an abortion policy, so this is going to be a state's issue. It's all going to be state's issues. It's a, it's a, for this libertarian, it was delightful. Yeah, it was a really um,
1: nice moment. I forget who it was that responded to him saying, actually, this is a moral issue. Was it... Was it? Was it... It was Mike Pence. It was Pence. Yeah, yeah. That that is the fundamental, and this is what liberals have been saying for the long time, and the left has been saying for the long for Every a long time. Every issue is a moral issue. No, no, no. That's not what it's going to say. It's going to say this. You can't say everything is states' rights as an excuse to overturn it on a on a federal level, and then say you want to yeah. pass a federal law banning things in the states. You cannot have it both ways. Either you care about freedom. If who was it, Vivek Ramaswamy, that said the most effective. Um, uh, government in the world is the nuclear family or the most effective way to manage things in the world is a nuclear family, well, let families make their own decisions. Don't let Washington do it.
0: Yeah. Uh, Amen to that. More rising right after this.
1: Robert F. Kennedy Jr. sat down with Project Veritas founder James O'Keefe to explain how the CIA is controlling what you see on social media.
4: But even journals like Smithsonian, and Smithsonian, and uh, National Geographic, Nature, um, The Washington Post, The New York Times appear to be uh, compromised by the CIA. We know from the, from the um, Twitter files at the, both the FBI and CIA were operating portals within the uh, Twitter and Facebook that allowed them to manipulate information and to, to deplatform people and to you know silence certain people that they didn't like in those in the social media. Operation Mockingbird was a, an operation to compromise American journalists. So there were uh, some 400 uh, editors, journalists. Um, from the, you know all the largest publications, the New York Times had been compromised. Um, the Washington Post was. What do you mean by compromised? For people who well, they know. were functioning. The high level people at those at those journals were actually were working for the agency or had you know signed uh, secrecy agreements with the CIA. And at CBS, ABC, NBC, after seventy five, when it all came out you know, during the Church Committee hearings. The CIA promised that it would no longer compromise American journalists. It continued the program to compromise journalists all over the world, and today the CIA is the biggest funder of journalism in the world. And how about present-day? They they fund it through USAID. Now, despite Kennedy's
0: distrust of the intelligence blob, financial records do indicate he's paid his daughter-in-law, a former CIA officer, tens of thousands of dollars in campaign cash. The Washington Examiner reports that the Kennedy 2024 campaign gave $21,000 to Amaryllis Kennedy, the wife of his son, Bobby Kennedy III. Amaryllis worked for the CIA until 2010, reportedly, quote, thwarting terror groups from obtaining weapons of mass destruction. I don't know much about this. Part of the Kennedy family lore has this uh, come across your radar before, Brianna?
1: I mean, I, the 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 fact of him having CIA relatives has has come up. Look, of course, it's the case that you can't control who your child falls in love with and marries. Of course, the fact of the, your 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 child spouse having ideological commitments that are different than your own doesn't mean that you are lying payments going to your daughter-in-law because maybe you helped them buy a house or you gave them a job when they needed money or something like that doesn't necessarily mean that he's like in cahoots with the CIA or that he's being disingenuous right. when he talks critically about those organizations. but. You know, I do think it would be interesting if a reporter were to ask him some questions about how he deals with those ideological and substantive differences with someone as close to his family uh, as she is, especially since he is getting so many questions from liberals about what, how he feels that his family members simply disagree with it, not have actual like professional commitments that are opposed to him, but they just don't agree with his take on vaccines or Ukraine or whatever
0: it is. Right, And that he has suggested before that he thinks it's the CIA or another— um Law enforcement or national security intelligence uh, agency or person uh, might have been involved in uh, in the the you know deaths in his family that yeah. have been the subject of mystery. Um, so obviously, in most of that clip, he's talking about a lot of which we know to be true: the influence by intelligence officials on um, on the media, on social media in recent years. I mean, he was talking somewhat about what's happening in the past. Um, yeah we like this this is a fact that there were separate portals set up on Facebook for law enforcement to flag um, uh, s- stuff they want looked at and taken down you know some now some of that is actually what we want or you know most people want law enforcement to identify you know like child pornography or or non-consensual images or violent images sure. or or terrorism being organized they actually do want law enforcement to flag those things for the platform to to take those down so it's not like all moderation is wrong or no one is ever like actually suggesting that because that's not true it's a lot of like gen like criminal uh, conduct on social media c- conduct that is rightly criminalized that needs to be dealt with that law enforcement can lend a hand but what's been so creepy and it generated so much objection is that it's just didn't stop there now it's just um it, it's disagreements, it's speech, it's it's um, policy disagreements on COVID, on national security. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about how, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, u- narratives that Ukraine doesn't want on social media have been flagged. Um, Lee Fong has done a lot of reporting on that, have been flagged by law enforcement for social media sites. So, yes, I think it's fair to say that they're, you know, they're working in tandem. Now, they're not always working in tandem because social media loves this arrangement, but because they faced, you know, so much pressure uh, from the Biden administration, and I'm, I'm sure we'll if it, even if it was a different po- yeah. political party's administration, it's not really the partisan. I mean, balance to be
1: honest, the, the social media aspect of this is just the figly, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, the CIA's involvement in directing the cultural trajectory of the United States of America and engaging in a deep propaganda campaign is well documented and infinitely more pernicious than just. And it's, I'm not saying it's not important, but than mm-hmm. just the influence on these new social media apps. I mean, the, the, in the wake of the Cold War, there was this concerted effort to infiltrate uh, media organizations, um, uh, Hollywood um, to influence the trajectory of American art, there was this feeling that uh, Soviet art, representational art, showing workers coming together, building a society collectively, was pernicious, and so they boosted Impressionism, both to downplay the, the kind of political value of representational art coming out of the East, and also to show, well, America is vibrant and innovative, and look at this new stuff that we're coming out, coming out with. Here, take some Jackson Pollock. Um, they uh, tried to influence—they uh, 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 were they were so frustrated that communism was so popular among young people who saw it as rooted in workers' rights and the growth of the labor movement at, coming out of the 1930s and 40s in the United States of America. They didn't understand why people were so attracted to it for its Um, Equality directives. uh, So many civil rights leaders uh, and labor leaders were communists. And so they had to engage in a propaganda campaign in the wake of the Cold War to make sure that these things weren't considered to be popular anymore. And of course, we all know about the Red Scare and all of those pogroms that swept through Hollywood uh, and stigmatized people down to— I love Lucy, (laughs) Um, but it was also it it also had these effects in so so much more subtle and pernicious ways. Um, And so everything that he's saying there, like people who want to call him a conspiracy theorist, like this is not the moment. Like this is not Mm -hmm. the latest. If anything, what he's describing there is understating how much of our cultural reality has been designed through state-run propaganda mechanisms.
0: Yeah, Um, and you know it's funny. So many even liberal people. Um, just kind of more normal liberal Democrats who object, who, you know, who know their history as well as anyone else, and object to the kind of red scare mentality, the um, McCarthy hearings, all of that stuff. Just totally, wholly embraced that exact same thing with respect to the twenty sixteen election and the purported Russian involvement. Um, when you know. W- w- what communication did you have with Russian agent? You know, what, what accusing people who had shared content on social media that they say is Russian origin, and still we hear to like uh, like this gets thrown. I think this Vivek got accused of this. Others get accused of that. your that narrative you're saying that's a Russian preferred narrative. Well. Is it accurate? Is it true? Like, doesn't matter if it if yeah. Russia prefers it. If it's the, if it is the case, like we see this these fact checks that oh, saying Ukraine is going to eventually lose the war against Russia is is a is a, is a Russian propaganda campaign. Well, like if it's true, yeah, you can't it, say that I, if it's I, true. I, I and, got, and the liberal media yeah. has wholly embraced that ridiculous. They're red scaring all over again.
1: Yeah, I was called out during the Bernie campaign for agreeing that. Uh, until uh, 60 years ago, America was an explicitly legal apartheid state mm-hmm. with two ter- two tiers of citizenship, one for white Americans and one for black Americans. Uh, and I was told, well, that's a Russian propaganda line, that America is bad for black people. And I said, well, the best way to fight back against that, since it's true, is to improve the status of all people living in this country and have substantive equality. But people didn't like that answer. They, you know, If Russia says that you're supposed to take a reactionary view and just take the opposite position, even if it means, I guess— uh, validating an apartheid state and my own people's oppression. So yeah, it's it's really gross. A lot, of, many of us just watched the Oppenheimer movie and saw the ways that his Absolutely. his labor bona fides and, and advocating for students' rights on campus was used against him or t- attempted to be used against him to invalidate his anti-war um, turn uh, toward the end of his life. And that is something I think that people have to be highly vigilant of. Why is it that there is this interest in framing? Russia and China, neither of whom have been meaningfully communist in a really long time as communist actors. What is it about this ideology that the blob in a bipartisan way seems to find to be so scary? Uh, We just had a a discussion with um, uh, Max Blumenthal about BRICS and the rise of alternative global economic systems. And could it be the case? That the reason that there has been so much red scare about the idea of communism and kind of workers' rights and a global solidaristic workers' movement across the globe, because the blob, the elites, that the people who have been driving U.S. hegemony since the Cold War, know that that's the biggest threat. To the system that they've designed, so I'm, I'm very glad that RFK Jr. Is, is raising these kinds of issues.
0: I'm gonna pull your mask off. It's <laughs> Vladimir Putin, after all.
1: Don't blow up my plane, please. Yes, the real, the real communist is Vladimir Putin.
0: Mm, more rising right after this. Member countries of BRICS, a growing non-Western economic collective, are meeting for their 15th annual summit in South Africa this week with a big announcement. Five new member countries have been added to the current bloc, Egypt, Ethiopia, Argentina, the UAE, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. They join current members, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Now, at the summit, leaders from member countries discuss de-dollarization, Western global hegemony, and moving toward a multipolar world.
1: And a thinly statement Chinese President Xi Jinping wrote quote one country obsessed with maintaining its hegemony has gone out of its way to cripple the emerging markets in developing countries whoever is developing fast becomes its target of containment whoever is catching up becomes its target of obstruction but this is futile as I have said more than once that blowing out others lamp will not bring light to oneself joining us now to weigh in as editor at the gray zone Max Blumenthal thanks for joining us
7: thanks for having me on
1: now this feels like a really significant global shift, um, an and end, as people are saying, to Western hegemony that many people predicted as we headed into this Ukraine proxy war, China becoming more closely aligned with Russia, and this 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 growth of this economic alliance that's meant to counterbalance Western hegemony and, and economic dominance seems to be really telling. Help us understand what what's at stake here.
7: Well, this is the most historic gathering of the BRICS, which was founded in 2009 to democratize international trade and international institutions by fostering multipolarity, countering the bipolar, unipolar world that's emerged since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which has brought on disaster for the global south as well as unchecked violations of international law through coalitions of the willing. Uh, as we've seen in Iraq and beyond. Uh, The BRICS aims to foster trade through a new development bank, as it's called, and this could potentially upend the hegemony, the domination of the dollar, particularly if states like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, which provide the basis for the petrodollar, which is itself the foundation of dollar hegemony, if they join... And begin trading in local currency. For example, Saudi Arabia is discussing uh, trading or uh, selling oil to China in renminbi, which would break the dominance of the petrodollar. So the reason this uh, gathering is so historic is because BRICS is actually talking about expanding and has pledged to expand to some very significant countries, including Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, but of course expansion can bring a lot of political complication.
0: The U.S. has been trying to, um, you know, flex its influence uh, all over the world for so long. You know, we spent so much money, we're spending so much money right now in Ukraine, the projects in the Middle East, the bases everywhere, on and on and on. Do you think the American people might feel at some point cheated by their government, that so much of this money has been spent? to, uh, to, and you might say that was not a good idea to do this in the first place, but we did do it. And yet we did not, we were, our influence is in decline despite how much effort and how many resources we've exhausted to remain, you know, the top, the top country, the top government in the world.
7: Well, our correspondent Anya Parampil is in Johannesburg covering the BRICS right now. And one thing she's noticed at a conference which mostly pertains to the nations of the global south Uh, especially the non-aligned nations that didn't line up with the Soviet Union or the US during the Cold War and which seek to fight for their independence is the presence of many Americans, as well as British reporters from places like The Economist. What are they doing there? Well, they sort of represent the interests of the G7, which is often posited as the, you know, the dominant sphere of uh, economic sphere. And they're threatened by what's happening at BRICS because of the prospect of de-dollarization, which is the, and the dollar, dollar hegemony is the basis for U.S. financial sanctions, which are administered unilaterally, not through the UN, to destroy the economies and the people of countries from Syria to Venezuela, to Cuba, uh, to countries like Eritrea, which is kind of the Cuba of Africa and has resisted IMF loans, taken its own line. And what the U.S. has done, by actually sanctioning one third of the world's population, think about that, is created a backlash where these countries are now gathering together and figuring out how they can conduct trade and break away from the dollar. And you've heard that expressed in the president's roundtable today that was held and convened by UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres from Venezuela, for example, or from Eritrea about the unfairness of global relations with the dollar dominating all trade and their desire to break it, they're not—they're—they're not, they're, they're not uh, hiding their agenda right now. However, there are other nations like Brazil, which have feared expansion of the BRICS uh, because they don't want to come to loggerheads with the U.S. And Brazil has only agreed to allow Argentina in at this point. But the desire is there, the possibilities are there, and the U.S. is making it almost impossible. For many of these countries to operate within the Bretton Woods system and not be financially immiserated.
1: So I think what's really important, if you want folks to really understand what's going on here, is to get at the root of what Xi Jinping was saying in the quote that we read at the top. This idea that this isn't conspiracy, this isn't just, you know, our quote-unquote enemy talking, but that it has been an explicit in harshly inflicted policy of the United States of America to maintain global dominance by actively suppressing other countries as they grow and develop either through sanctions, right. as you pointed out, with one-third of the world's uh, 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 people being sanctioned, um, or through other kind of uh, economic tools like the IMF. But I do think sometimes we skip over how exactly something like the IMF, which many people understand is just you know a good thing that gives money to governments so that they can grow, right. and are we just being charitable? I mean, how do all of those global organizations, those uh, financial organizations, act as a tool of the government in this way, and therefore, You know, and how how does that help us understand why this BRICS Alliance and the growth of the BRICS Alliance is so important to to shaking off the shackles of US control, economic control?
7: Yeah, that's a a great question. I mean, that's the point of the New Development Bank is to give out loans that are favorable to countries who do not want to have to meet the political conditions that the United States and its uh, transatlantic partners meet out and impose on them so we can look at what's happening in argentina right now after years and years of austerity imposed by the imf because uh the, their reserves are dried up and they're experiencing hyperinflation the, the country's shifting right and the front runner in their election is javier malay who's a right-wing libertarian which may actually complicate their brics membership as well as latin american cooperation or we can put the, think of this in light of the hunter biden scandal Uh, And what the IMF, how the U.S. uses the IMF, even against supposed allies, Joe Biden, when his son was on the Burisma board, went to Kiev and threatened them with an IMF loan showing how the U.S. can control the IMF and said, you will not receive this loan unless you, quote, reform your judiciary, fire the prosecutor and do everything that might have been needed to protect Burisma from prosecution. Uh, So it actually fostered more corruption in Ukraine. And then once they got the loan, they had to meet all these uh, austerity conditions, which have doomed the Ukrainian population, particularly Ukrainian workers, sold off their land. And so BRICS is presenting an alternative. And it's also politically significant that Russia and China are able to break through the attempts to isolate them or, in Joe Biden's words, reduce the ruble to rubble. Vladimir Putin in his address to BRICS pledged to actually supplant Ukraine as a global grain supplier to Africa and promised tons and tons of free grain to Africa. Africa has experienced the brunt of the Ukraine proxy war and U.S. sanctions and complications of grain exports. And so this is massive for Africa. And then we can look at what's happening inside Africa in the Sahel region, where you have these popular coups overthrowing governments that had been tools of the West, particularly Niger, Burkina Faso, Mali, particularly tools of France. And Niger is following on the foothills of this multipolar development by starting a a new company to not just export tomatoes and then import tomato paste, but to actually produce tomato-based products and to industrialize their gold production, which right now consists of a lot of youth in informal artisanal mines, holding out pans in water. Uh, This is so this is a, a massive development that will have a ricochet effect throughout the African continent.
1: Yeah, that's, that's such an important point. I just did a deep dive on Niger on my own podcast recently. I was really shocked by an expert who was explaining the extent to which all of those countries in the so-called post-colonial era, era were very much still subject to uh, control of Fran- uh, by France through their currency and have been victims of a highly e- extractive relationship with France throughout and, and, and have, have intentionally their infrastructure and their development thwarted, while China's approach has been to build stadiums and infrastructure, and, and that's part part of why it's been so dominant. One last question that I had for you, though, is the American public, since the end of the Cold War, has been convinced that America's efforts to maintain global dominance are in the interest of the American people. There was the domino theory and the broad public investment in the idea that you had to beat the Soviets, got to beat them to the moon, you got to beat them around the world. It justified any number of wars—Vietnam, et cetera, stopping the expansion of communism, is something changing now or are we still in a situation where the idea of um, other global powers emerging, namely China, is being used by people to beat the drum of war? And if that's the case, you know, how should Americans think about the decline of American dominance globally? Are they wrong to think that it will negatively impact their standards of living? And why should they think differently about perhaps a kind of global solidarity?
7: Well, we're looking at the decline of American hegemony, but this doesn't necessarily mean that the U.S. is experiencing an economic decline. Our economy is completely financialized and based on artificially backed currency. Uh, But the U.S. has the means to do what other countries are doing to fuel its own development. If it actually sought to do it, if it wasn't selling off its industrial base at the whims of corporations. But that's just not the, the reality that we've been living in. And I just think most, many Americans, and actually most Americans now uh, oppose aid to Ukraine. They don't accept this argument that sending aid there is actually beneficial to Americans in any way because they experienced what Biden falsely called the Putin price hike, which was actually the NATO price hike. By electing to sanction Russia, the U.S. was no longer able to offset the oil that it refused to import from Iran and Venezuela and other oil producers because of political sanctions on those countries. So Americans need to understand how their government sanctions have a boomerang effect at home. They are not going to experience it as strongly as Europeans or Africans for that matter, but they're beginning to get the picture. and We see it even playing out in the Republican debates. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's just basically a proxy for Trump on so many positions, he successfully exposed the gulf between the Republican corporate elite and the Republican base on Ukraine, which understands that this war, it doesn't benefit it, and used it to break through in the debate while the rest of the candidates took the George W. Bush position, which has been discredited. Uh, There's no candidate putting forward that line within the Democratic Party, uh, but it will be exposed further throughout this campaign that Americans understand they don't benefit from this so-called rules-based order in which the U.S. seeks to make the rules and everybody else has to follow its orders. Americans would like to have friendly trade relations too to benefit their economic future.
0: My uh, Ramaswamy's uh, break with the rest of the candidates on the Ukraine issue is something I talked about on my radar, which viewers should check out if they missed it. Thank you, Max, so much for joining us.
7: Thanks. And check out the Gray Zone for coverage from BRICS by Anya Parampil.
0: Absolutely. For residents of Lahaina who found themselves trying to outrun deadly wildfires, the difference between life and death meant whether they were willing to disobey the authorities. A new AP report reveals that road closures trapped people stuck in traffic gridlock, desperately trying to flee the flames. Some survivors say they were only able to
1: escape was by blowing past government barriers by car or on foot. Mm. Nearly 1,000 fire victims remain missing and unaccounted for. However, as one user on Twitter pointed out, mainstream media just isn't that plugged into the story. Tuesday, CNN's Wolf Blitzer devoted a full hour to covering former President Trump's upcoming surrender in Georgia, but made no mention of those still missing in Hawaii.
0: Journalist Glenn Greenwald seized on liberal media's Trump addiction, tweeting, quote, for the vast bulk of the U.S. corporate media, there's no sense that journalism is supposed to be about adversarially scrutinizing what the current president and government are doing. Three years into Biden's presidency, they barely mentioned Biden, still fixate on Trump. So, uh, yeah, all these reports we're hearing for the situation uh, in Maui, um, it is it is fascinating it sounds like and there really needs to be an investigation a lot of um mismanagement mm-hmm. by the uh, by you know people who are supposed to warn coordinate on emergencies these road closures uh barriers getting in the way of people like escaping like the fire is coming they can the cars are starting to melt around them and they got to get out they got to get out and run for it and there are actual barriers of course we know that the emergency system which is supposed to be a very state-of-the-art emergency system failed to go off um obviously there are a lot of questions about um, uh, the delay, the alleged delay, in releasing the water to actually take care of the fire. Um, a lot of speculations about why that was done. Um, you know, in addition to all the other concerns one might have, at the end of the day, you need—you know, it's not even ideological. You need competent—even conservatives, liberals, leftists, libertarians, everything we want, whatever government we have, we want it competently run, Yeah, and I this seems like a, like a big screw-up.
1: There were some comparisons to Volde because there were these stories yes. that people were trying to flee. They were directed by officials back toward the flames in the other direction, and the people who survived in those cases were the ones that ignored the police or whoever the emergency officials were, jumped over the barricades and followed their gut and what their senses were telling them to do. There was another heartbreaking story of a mother who tried to get back into their house to save their child, and they were told, well, we've evacuated this area, there's no one in there, just sit tight. I'm sure we'll find them. Once the fires were put out, she went back to her house and found her child dead, burned from the fire, clutching their their family dog. Ugh. I mean you know, and there's obviously all obvious these questions, obviously. But for emergency officials telling me not to go back, could I still have my child? I mean, it's absolutely heartbreaking.
0: That does remind us of the Vivaldi situation, where yeah. again, these are people uh, that, that work for us who have who are supposed to be. Um, you know, and it's a it's a diff- to be an emergency services provider, to be a you know a government official coordinating emergency, to be a police officer, to be a firefighter. These are I'm not saying these are easy jobs. No. Um, but you know that is the job is to put yourself in harm's way, is to, is to have a clear head during a crisis, and we are we're supposed to rely on that. And the people who do it well are heroes, no questions about it. But that doesn't mean we don't get to 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 object when there is gross misconduct that results in people dying unnecessarily, yeah. as was abundantly, absolutely the case in Uvalde, when they, you know, the police prevented parents from rushing in to rescue their children, congregated outside the door. I know it's a, you know, it's a dangerous situation. The shooter had a, had a, a gun, a high-capacity weapon. But all of the training suggests you don't wait, you don't wait for an hour and 10 minutes or whatever it is. You yeah. go in, you confront it. Similarly here, I don't know, you know, what the—obviously, the there's no training with the emergency system. It's just supposed to work, um, but this whole, you know, don't go this way because the road is, da- is the road dangerous because it's like a treacherous path, but there's a wall of flames coming right. the other direction and you like, technically you're like, well, we can't let people go down this pathway because a stair is out. Like, come on. Yeah. There's a wall of flames coming.
1: Yeah. Now, I do think that some of the criticism that, you know, our, our friend Glenn Greenwald raised is a little bit uh, off base. I don't know that covering the fact that a former president is going to be arraigned mm-hmm. is a misuse of airtime. I certainly think it's a relevant national story. There's a complaint that they're not covering Biden enough. I think that Biden absolutely should be covered critically by the media. But I think all elites, powerful people, former presidents included, need to be covered. And to the extent that there, I think, is a sincere interest on the right in the criminal justice system treating everybody equally, that involves not just ignoring the fact that an unprecedented thing is happening right now. If if the president of the United States of America, the former president and someone who many people think is still the president, is about to be arraigned in a courthouse and have a mugshot taken uh, today. Moreover, if we're going to be critical of the media not asking incisive questions and doing good journalism, adversarial journalism, you also have to bring the focus on Tucker Carlson and his interview with Donald Trump last night, who, as we discussed in an earlier segment, did not ask him hardly anything of political relevance. There was a lot of, did Epstein get killed, or someone gonna kill you, Uh, Panama Canal, not sure what that's all about. And then when he did talk about the things without of national significance right now, the charges against him, there was no real interrogation of, okay, well, how likely are you actually to be incarcerated for this? Do you think that this is going to pre- prevent you from running for office? What are your lawyers telling us? What should voters think? What are the actual concerns here? How are you yeah. going to address the charges that you actually conspired to submit a false slate of electors? What's going on here? Assure the public.
0: Right. I'm not a. I'm not the biggest fan of criticism, media criticism that goes along the lines of of, of well, your cover. I don't. I object to your yeah, cover. Cover this, choices. not that. Because the reality is, well, and sometimes specializing on some kind of coverage is good because this coverage is being missed elsewhere. And, like, if you want coverage of X, you can turn on. They're, they're like there's so there are so many news outlets, cable news, online news, print news. There's so many ways to get the news, and honestly, viewers can can find the things they want covered. And and the, the our our own channel is like this. We respond, we cover more of the things our viewers want us to talk about, less of the things we they that they're less interested in. There's obviously there's some you know push and pull here. Sometimes we think That's there's occasionally a demand
1: and, a labor segment. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: right, right, but uh, but and I'm sure Glenn is like that. Well, I'm sure he his for his audience, he's. Coming covering a lot of the things that he knows his viewers care about. So that criticism can always, in my view, go a little.
1: Yeah. Also, all the time that's spent saying, you're not covering Maui, could be spent just covering Maui. And this is the same thing with, with what we saw in East Palestine. The appetite for covering East Palestine yeah. on the right went away when it was no longer a useful cudgel against Joe
0: Biden. But, but, And I will say, because I'm not picking on Glenn at all, this is a criticism I myself used to get tons of from just like normie liberal media people. Oh, same. When I was writing um, earlier in my career, I was primarily writing about um, the campus free speech yeah. issues, and it would always be—I uh, can't tell you how many times I got a, oh, you know, you covered, you know, whatever, the local pro-life group getting told they can't canvas here, but you haven't covered X, Y, and Z things, even when I had written about X, Y, Z things, and then when I would write about X, Y, Z things, they don't care, crickets. Yeah, they only coming after me, and like, I, and they would, they would, they would even do like you're covering that, but you're not writing about like how evil Trump is or something. I'm like, that's not even my beat. That's you can what find I get plenty of reporting on this at my magazine. I get a lot you of. You can find more reporting on this yeah. on my magazine, but I am like, I'm a specialist on this thing. So those criticisms, I've in the past, I have a bad history with them. I think. Yeah, I get a lot so of, bad faith.
1: I get a lot of, why aren't you covering Trump? And it's because it's covered plenty. But in the case of Uvalde, I just want to stick on this. I want to make this really clear. There is a one person, there is one consistent reporting um, group that I have seen stay in Uvalde and demonstrate an actual investment in what's going on with the people of Uvalde. They aren't right corporate media, they aren't left corporate media, and they are not right independent media. It's the status coup.
0: You mean East Palestine?
1: East Palestine. Sorry, what did you I say? You said Uvalde. Oh, sorry. East Palestine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, That's it, what I thought It, it, is, it, is, it is the status quo So when I'm looking for media that I can trust, What I'm looking for people whose politics that I trust, and I want to get a sense of if they really care about the people that they're talking about rather than just using them as a political cultural, and I see over and over again that it is left independent media, that matters to me. Hmm. All right. Well, that does it for
0: us for today. We got the debate out of our system. I think um, it was. Uh, I
1: could do another forty-five minutes.
0: Oh, don't. Well, you probably will be because you have your own podcast <laughs> to uh, see. Too. Brianna asked me to join her, and I said, <laughs> "I think I'm done for the week."
1: It's okay. I've, I've conscripted another guest. If you want more of this, you can do me over on Bad Faith on Monday. I
0: am. I am closing down shop for the week. Uh, of course, we will be back next week right it's thursday am i i'm not hallucinating this tune
1: in tomorrow uh, tune in tomorrow
0: for rising friday and they will be the the duo the friday duo will be giving you all the content you love and expect to see brianna and i will be back next week
1: be sure to like share and subscribe so you never miss any content and for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts
0: like subscribe share do all that stuff have a good weekend